Good morning. If you'd like to join with me, page 932 of the Pew Bible, I'll be reading Acts 23, 12 through 25. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that even in situations that to us look bad, that you can protect us, you can guard us, you will walk through it with us, just as you did with Paul in this situation, using the tribune and all the soldiers to protect him. You, Lord, have sent your son to protect us from our sin, our own failings. Lord, I ask that you help us to keep that in mind at all times, that we're not worthy of the gift of your son, and we're, we, sh- we should be ever grateful for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we go to the Word this morning, I wonder if I can borrow a bit of goodwill here, and just before we get into the Word, uh, we want to follow up as elders on an email that we sent last night. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, we have a a bit of family work to do here before we get to the work of the Word. Uh, Over the past few months now, as we have as elders sought to be faithful in shepherding you, making decisions and taking precautions as it pertains to COVID-19. One of the precautions you know well that we took was the requiring of masks into the service because we believe it's important and for the wisdom and the safety of our people to do that. Um, but over the past few weeks, as we have been encouraged to study and pray more, and as we've done that, we, we came to the conclusion that though that we believe that is wise, we were inconsiderate and insensitive to two particular groups of people And so we want to apologize publicly uh, to those two groups and to you for being inconsiderate, insensitive to those uh, people. We weren't intending to do that, but we recognize now that we were. And the two groups would be one, if if you have a medical condition 
that prohibits you from wearing a mask. Uh, this is one of the provisions in Governor Abbott's GA29. Uh, we didn't make an accommodation for you. We're sorry for that. And we want to we be able to make an accommodation. So if you're listening to me this morning, maybe on live stream or you're here today, and you're wanting to have that accommodation, we would love to work with you. Please see one of the elders. And we would love to be able to have an opportunity for you to be with us. The second would be the individual who might have a conscientious objection to wearing a mask. That one's a little more difficult for us as we do believe it's prudent to wear a mask, but uh, there's some folks today in the Fellowship Hall, brothers and sisters in Christ, we love them, and uh, we've made an accommodation there for, for those who do not want to wear a mask. Um, if there's seating available in there, you can come in through the Fellowship Hall, uh, enjoy the worship service, Lord's Supper, Fellowship with the Saints, and then following the service, just be able to go right back out front and fellowship with all of us. Uh, as we socially distance and do all of those type of things. So we're sorry for that. We want to make public apology, and those are the two accommodations we have. If you have questions, uh, see Eddie, David, or myself. We'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray yet again. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to now open your word. We're grateful for the way you are kind to us, loving to us, the way you speak to us. We submit ourselves now to the authority of your word, in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen. Uh, well, David read through verse 25. We are going through verse 35. 25 and 35 sound alike when you say them from the pulpit. So uh, we'll get to those, that particular section and, and work through the letter there and what takes place in 31 uh, through 35. Uh, but by way of introduction, I just want us to, to consider, if we will, what is taking place in Paul's life. Uh, I grew up in New Braunfels, Texas, I remember many a Sunday going to church, driving down I-35 from uh, Loop 46, coming down, or Highway 46 coming down toward San Antonio, south on I-35, and, and seeing convoys of military vehicles moving. And it was fascinating to my brothers and sister and I as we considered, where are they going? Who's in there? What's happening? Uh, recently, my children and I being out at the park here at Lady Bird Johnson and seeing, you know, helicopter after helicopter of some military sort zoom in and land one right after the other, six, seven, eight of them coming back to our house, them flying over our house, starting to get a little concerned. They're thinking about us. No, we're just wondering, what are they doing? Where are they going? Who's in that helicopter? What are they training for? One could imagine what it would have been like to be in one of the world wars, uh, in your home and late at night hearing the marching of a troop convoy as they move down the road past your house and wondering what's happening and what's taking place and will I be safe and what's going on? Who have they got with them? You, you can put yourself in that situation, I, I think, and that's what's taking place here maybe as well. You could consider that night. Uh, 470 men, 200 footmen, 70 spearmen, 200 horsemen moving through late at night and, and the scuttlebutt, if you will, that would have passed through the town the next morning of, did you, did you hear that? What was that all about? Where were they going? Oh yeah, they, they, I heard that they were taking some rebel or at least the Jews think he is. And so they're taking him and, man, he must be of some importance. They've got him all packed in there. And they're traveling with him. And 
This guy's name is Paul. And just the conversations that would have taken place. Even as we consider in our narrative this morning, 12 through 35, I think it's important for us to recognize uh, Paul is sort of writing this story along. It's unfolding before him and after him and around him, but he, he is not the main player as he is in much of the rest of the book of Acts that we've studied. In fact, it, it, it almost begs the question, what, who is the main player here? And where does the emphasis lie in a passage like this where you've had someone like Paul be so central to the work of God and, and now he's, he's moving along. And I think as we give ourselves to this passage for the following few minutes, we can all come to the conclusion, if you've not already gotten there in mind, that God is the, the center of this. It, it is his providential care of his man, Paul, that shines brightest. Paul is a mere man. Uh, he bleeds like you and I do. He, he puts the robe on one arm at a time. He straps the sandals on like we might do. But God is the one who shines, and it is his glory that is on display. It is the providence of God throughout history. And we have the ability to look back upon history. And in fact, we have the ability, like no one else who has come before us has, we have the most history, if you will, to look back upon and see the providential hand of God. That God does work all things together for the good of his children and his glory. And so the Christian has the ability to look back in history upon the world, a world of sin, and be able to recognize that much of history is not all that glorious. The narrative today is trying to erase one's past. I don't like uncle or aunt or grandpa or granddad or grandma or great, great, great so-and-so who used to whatever. Yes, there has been racism in our country in the past and presently. There has been murder in our past. There has been adultery in our past. Our history is not one to write home about. But acting as if one can change the past is insane. And acting as if God is not in control of everything that has happened and knows full well and is even using all those things is, if you will, blind. But we can look back and we can recognize the promises of God and the ability he has to work even over and through our mistakes. And here we are reading the book of Acts and if we were there on that day with Paul, we're looking at a little boy and we're looking at Rome and we're looking at horsemen and we're looking at chains and imprisonment and we're thinking there's no way out. There's no way forward. There's finally a situation in history that God can't overcome. We have the view of recognizing no. No, not at all. The Christian has to see the difficulty of life through the lens of the Bible. That's the privilege we have. We have the ability to, to look at our day and see it clearly and call it for what it is. Not in despair, but in reality. 
Let's just say it. it's not good, right? Go turn the news on and don't come, you can't come away if you've got any sense at all and say, yeah, this is looking like a really great day. Even the weatherman's going to get it wrong for you. No, the Christian has the ability through the lens of the Bible to see the difficulty of life, to see the challenges before us, to understand that there is a purpose and that God is still in control. And if you don't have that, you're going to go to all sorts of useless means of numbing the pain. And if you've ever tried that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You try drink and that one's not or didn't or is currently not numbing the pain. You've tried sex, you've tried drugs, and you've tried B-list sins to get yourself some sort of entertainment that keeps your mind out of or off the focus of what's happening around us. You've just committed yourself to being a workaholic because your work is good and you've, you're going all in and you're successful and you're doing the right things and somehow that's going to negate or blind some of the pain of whatever all this stuff is around us. The Bible gives us a clear understanding that God is in charge. And though we might not see how he's going to work it all out now, we trust that he will work it out because he's, he's got a track record of 6,000 plus years. We can bring this same idea home to our current day. COVID-19 is not outside the providence of God. In fact, it's helpful for us to recognize that it was sent by the hand of a providential God. And he is seeking our attention by its presence. He's exposing the sins of our nation. He's exposing the sins of my own heart. I trust he's exposing the sins of your own heart. But when we grow weary of masks and precautions and restrictions and government policy and whatever else, the Christian has to remind themselves God knows and God is in control. And that's not some sort of fairy tale living as if, as if it's all going to work out. I routinely use the example of Pollyanna and it's a dying example because nobody's seen Pollyanna anymore or he knows who she is. But if you've laughed, you know who Pollyanna is. Right? That's not the Christian. Po power of positive thinking. No. My job then is to live by faith in the reigning Jesus Christ over even COVID-19 and seek, like Paul and his situation, our current situation, whatever your current personal circumstances are, to seek to conduct ourselves as one who has hope and not as one who is hopeless. He had the same, Paul has the same promises we do, brothers and sisters. He's got the same ammunition to put in the faith gun, if you will. By the power of the Spirit that lives in Paul, that, lived in, that lives in us, we, as he, can resolve to do our best and we trust him to help us through it. Let's, let's look at our passage here. This long introduction, but I, I think helpful for us to sort of put our hands around what's taking place in sort of a repeated narrative, uh, Paul has been in similar situations. 
Uh, he's been, the Jews have been chasing him throughout the book of Acts. Uh, they, they've grabbed him before, right? This is nothing new in a sense. And we're going to carry this first section through, and I've just entitled it as Plot Reported. And this is verses 12 through 24, where we have this plot to kill Paul. It's overheard, and, and then it's reported. And that takes us up to this letter. Look with me, if you will, at verse 12 and following. The Jews made a plot. Probably it would have been the Sadducees. They were sort of the majority rule. And they made this plot. They bind themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And this is actually going to carry on even later on into the book of Acts. And there's 40 of them. Uh, there's, if you've looked at any sort of pictures or heard much about the city of Jerusalem where Paul is located, 40 men could have carried this task out quite easily. Very narrow streets, uh, crowds pressing in as they're moving Paul from one place to the next. Very easy for someone to slip in and do the work of an assassin and leave the mess on the ground, if you will, and Paul is done. And so they go. They, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. And then the question would be, are these guys, did they die of hunger and thirst? Because they didn't get it done. And the answer is no. Law would have even made provision if the oath couldn't be carried out. After some time, they were released from it. And so they, they hatched this plan. You can see that quite clearly, I trust, in the text. They're going to ask the tribune to bring him down to the council, and they'll do the work as he passes on the way. Now, I, I think it's just a wonderful reminder. Verse 16, God uses all shapes, sizes, young and old, right, to do his work. Uh, I don't know who Paul's nephew is. We don't have a name. We don't have an age. Frankly, this is the only thing we know about Paul and his family. Uh, we don't, it, it, it would seem as if by reading the text, he's a fairly young man. Uh, maybe my son's age. Maybe Gage's age. Maybe Ellery's age. I don't know, maybe older, maybe Shepherd's age. Uh, it seems like he would be a fairly young man. I, I don't know too many um, Roman guards who would go holding the hand of some 21-year-old young man and say, C come here, let, let's talk a little bit. I mean, Maybe. Seems a little odd. So probably we have a fairly young man. And he doesn't wake up thinking, I'm going to be used by God. He's just where he's at. I can envision a little boy in crowded streets, running around, darting in and out, having fun, skidding to a halt, hearing some people whisper, Underneath the window, you get the idea. He hears what's happening, and he goes to Paul. Now, I think it's, uh, you got to get the picture here. I mean, when I think of prison, I think, right, go through one door, and then you go through the next door, and then you got to go through the metal scanner, and then, right? So you don't get this picture of just this little boy, woo, right into prison, the way we think of it. But barracks, obviously, they had... Uh, an easy means, maybe by way of him being family, of passing in and out. And so you can he see this little boy. He's, he's hearing what's taking place. And his immediate thought is, I've got to tell Uncle Paul. And here he goes racing through the barracks. And as he runs through some Roman, as 
all adults do with little kids. Stop running through the house. And he races up to Paul and he tells him the story that he's overheard. And Paul, very interestingly here, doesn't say, oh man, it's, uh, it's in for me now. Or oh man, go, go tell the Jerusalem elders. He, he recognizes, he's written it, God has authorities in place for our good and he appeals up the ladder, chain of authority, says to one of the centurions, one of the guards, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The young, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately. And he tells him, tells him what takes place. Tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. You can imagine that little boy, I got a secret. Rome told me a secret. Running home, I got a secret. He's, he's a young child, right? The providential hand of God to use all the world. He's taken this young man, ironically, very uniquely, we don't think of Roman centurions or tribunes as meek, gentle men, but he has a moment of genteelness with this little boy and dismisses him, knows what's going to take place, and he orders the protection of Paul. All of that following or coming after the morning that Paul had seen Christ Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. You can imagine Paul waking. <laughs> I've been told to take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He's eating his breakfast. His nephew comes up, and then he hears this whole story, and there's got to be this idea that runs through his head because he's just a mere man. Wait a minute. I thought I'm going to Rome. No. Surely it's going to get better Jesus was with me, but actually it wasn't. Have you ever thought about why? We talked about it a little bit last week, but for more thought about why the Jews hated Paul. They just cannot stop seeking to crush him, to obliterate his life. And we've, we've looked in the book of John and other places to remind ourselves that they're just doing what Christ has told all of us that people who hate Christ do, which is persecute those who follow Christ. There's nothing new here. But maybe another verse to help remind us of that. If you like, you can turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And this is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he's telling the church in Thessalonica about something that's going to happen. A future idea. And yet, even by way of saying it's going to happen in the future, it, there's, there's clarity from the word that this is also happening even now as we approach the return of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. It's that whole verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What do people that hate 
Jesus Christ do? They're lawless people. Their own hearts are a law unto themselves. They believe that what they like, what they enjoy, what is good for them, what they love, is defines what is right. It's the culture of our day. A post-modernistic culture is the way we say it. This idea that there's no truth. It's all relative. But no, actually, it's the mystery of lawlessness. I don't think the Jews would have, Sadducees or Pharisees, they, if you sat them down and interviewed them and say, why, why are you trying to des- destroy Paul? They wouldn't have said, well, Paul's going to write to you one day and tell you it's about the mystery of lawlessness. No, not at all. Even Paul, in his persecution to the church, when Christ reveals himself to Paul, what is shocking to Paul is, why are you persecuting me? Paul would have said, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting them. Even here, we've got the Jews in hatred of Paul. Actually, that being an application of their hatred of Jesus Christ. And it's the same yesterday as it is today. Verse 23. Notice what this tribune does. He takes two centurions. He tells them, gives them instructions on what to do. This tribune probably would have been, if he was not, uh, he would have been uh, over a Roman cohort, which was a thousand soldiers. I think that's important to note just simply because Claudius sends roughly half of his entire men out to protect Paul. If he's got a thousand soldiers underneath his charge, he sends out 470 to protect Paul. You, uh, I mean, 470 against 40. He knows how many are, are going to come after Paul. I mean, we could look back and go, Claudius, aren't you you're overdoing it just a little bit? No. The Lord knows. And, and they, they mount up. This would have been about 9 p.m. And they take off with a letter that he has written. Let's look at this second part. This is 25 through 35. This is the plot averted if the first was a plot reported then we're a plot averted and we've got this letter that's written I'll make just a few notes on it this man Claudius to the excellency the governor Felix this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him and having learned that he was a Roman citizen it's just interesting to note what he does not include in there He didn't learn he was a Roman citizen. He was told by Paul he was a Roman citizen. But we'll leave that part out. I mean, that's, we don't need to get into details. And having, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. 
And reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Antipatris is a city along the way uh, between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Uh, they would have probably made that trip in one push, which would have been 35 of the 62 miles they had to travel. I don't know about you, but I've done some hiking in my day, and 35 miles in one night, you're moving very quickly. They got Paul out of there very rapidly, and in fact, once they're there, the, the bodyguard, if you will, splits up, and some come back down to Jerusalem, and the rest carry him on over to Caesarea. Cilicia was part of the Roman province of Syria, so it's interesting when he gets to Felix, Felix asks him, where are you from? <clears throat> and Paul answers, from Sicilia. Felix administered a portion of that province. So Felix would have assumed that Paul's case was under his jurisdiction. And Herod's praetorium is one of Herod's palaces. Uh, it's right on the edge of the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's a far different location than what he probably would have been in Jerusalem. It's very airy. Uh, it would have been filled with sights and sounds of sort of the cutting edge of Rome as compared to the, the tightness of Jerusalem. And he's very much under the protection of Herod. We'll speak more about this. I'm sorry, not Herod, Felix. We'll speak more about this in the coming, in the coming weeks, starting next week. But he's actually going to be here for quite a period of time. Now, let's just think a little bit about, in closing, this entire passage and connecting back to the idea of the providence of God in protecting his man, Paul. Who could have foreseen the sharp ears of a young boy, the kindness of a Roman centurion, the wisdom of a Roman tribune, the protection of God's man, Paul, to fulfill his promise that Paul would see and testify of Christ Jesus to Rome. Who would have foreseen how he would have done it? Who would have thought, going back to the Old Testament, that God would use something called a boat to save people after 100 years of misery from something called a flood? Who would have thought that God would get his people to a, a cul-de-sac, a dead-end street, where one direction is enemies bearing down on them to kill them and the other is drowning? Who would have thought God would create a path through the sea? Who would have guessed a small boy would have been the champion of the Lord's army, King David? No one would have seen the provision of a little slave girl's faith to show forth the power of God to an enemy commander. Who would have guessed that the death of two sons and a husband would be the means of getting a Moabite woman named Ruth to a Jewish man from whom would come the line of David all the way to Christ? Anyone taking odds on a virgin girl having a baby boy? How about that time Peter was in prison for preaching Christ? You think anyone would have guessed a heavenly jailbreak would take place? The church didn't. 
Who would have guessed that God would get Corrie ten Boom out of a Nazi concentration camp mere feet from her death by a technicality? Who would have foreseen the work God would do through a diving accident and paralyzation of one Johnny Erickson Tata? I don't know too many people that laid odds on Eric Little winning the 400-meter sprint after having the courage to stand on his convictions. And what about what he did for you? We, can't, we can see it now because we have eyes to see, but for all of us, at some point, the future looked as bleak as all the examples and many others I could give from Scripture where it seemed to be there's no possibility forward. Who would have considered that a lamb could save sinners? Who would have thought a man could rise from the dead? Who would have guessed that you would be here today knowing of that one who rose from the dead? I have the the benign, if you will, testimony of being raised in a Christian life. I've always been a good boy. But some of you didn't have that grace. Your testimony is no less nor is it more, but it's interesting because there's folks in here that people who you still have contact with who still know you are going, what? You? There? Him? Wow. There you were back in the day under the bondage of sin an orphan to all of life, under the fatherhood of Satan, not even wanting out of the filth of your sin, quite in love with the perfume of death. Your orphanage was a morgue, and you loved it. No one wanted you. No one could rescue you. And you didn't want to be wanted, and you didn't care to be rescued. And then one day, another man walked into the morgue and you thought nothing about him. He was just like you, flesh and blood. And then he spoke, and when he spoke, things changed. The power of his voice, the way that the coldness of your heart cracked, the bloodless expression of hate for the first time softening. He looked at you and others around you in your vile rags, in your gut-wrenching odor, and said, I'll take that one. I want him as my child. And with power unspeakable and full of glory, he drew you in and embraced you as only a father does his offspring. In a blink of light, in a flash of an eye, you found yourself washed in light and not in death or darkness. You found yourself in a relationship You understood what love actually is. You were given an inheritance, not of death, but of life abundant. God providentially knows where his people are and he does what he needs to do to get them to where he wants them to be. What about you this morning? Have you considered the nature, the condition of your soul in sin? If you've not seen the glory of Jesus Christ as the one who can save you from your sin, I'm glad that you don't have the physical odor of death, but you're dead spiritually and you have no hope to understand what this life is about, to recognize the 
hope that we have as Christians eternal life and you need to be saved from your sin. And there's no one, including you, that can possibly do that on this side of heaven. And the one that can do it is not on this side of heaven but's going to return and judge those on this side. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who came in the flesh and took upon himself the form of man, lived the life that you could not live, died the death that we deserve. And because of his death, we can die to our sin and be alive to Jesus Christ. The call is very simple from Scripture. If you recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you, it's a very simple thing. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. Put your faith in him to be the one alone who can save you. And you might be asking, well, there's got to be more. Let us talk to you about that. There's people to the right and left. Call me. Take me to coffee. I'd love to talk about it. Friends, God specializes in 11th hour work. In our minds, he does. In his timing, it's always perfect timing. His providence and provision for those who are his is absolutely wonderful. And the difficulty is, the problem is, I'll tell you the problem that I have, and that is I can't go more than a few hours after remembering the faithful provision of God in my life and others, and then I forget it again, and I have to be reminded. And we've got the word of God, and we have the testimony of the saints, and we have the the file that he has created for us of how he has sustained us that we must look back to, that we must look upon and be reminded of God's faithfulness. It's simple stories, if you will, like this passage here in Acts 23 that remind us once again that get us through the next few hours, maybe even the next few days, calling to mind the mighty power and provision of God to protect and care for his children through whatever he has ordained in our lives. And even here in the next few minutes, we get another means of grace to remind us of the way he does a mighty work in the lives of sinners to save them. That picture is baptism, which we'll speak more about in a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we recognize that we so often fail in our week of faith to trust you for the daily circumstances of our lives. Father, our vision is, is so short-sighted. Uh, we can rarely see more than a few inches before our face. And that's good. And it's right. And it's important for us to realize that you give us the grace to trust you, to walk humbly and faithfully before you for just that short amount that we can see. Knowing that you see the whole picture, that you see that which is just out of focus, that you see what is coming around the corner, and that you are in control of it, that you've designed it, that you're allowing it, and that you're using it. Father, we're so grateful that we don't serve a God of chance. 
but one of sovereign control. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look in your word this morning. We pray now, Father, that even as we move to the joy of baptism, this simple work of obedience by those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, have given the hope, been given the hope of eternal life. This is just another means of grace that helps us through this week. And we pray that you would lay it upon our hearts in a powerful way. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.